Welcome back to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick, and I'm here with Joel Dodkis Kulbori. Hello, Joel. Hello, Brian. How are you? Good. Did you get your Christmas shopping done last weekend? No, I did not because the snow came, and I hate snow, ironically, for a Swede. So I tend to stay indoors until the snow goes away. <laughs> You're lucky that there hasn't been a lot of precipitation the past few years. That's true. That's true. And, <laughs> and I'll be going to the UK in just a few weeks where I know for a fact that it only rains and never snows. Yes, since we last spoke, because we did not delete the part of the podcast, Joel got some money to go to Cambridge. I did. And then I find out that, that Cambridge is super expensive. Right. <laughs> it's not Gothenburg anymore, Toto. <laughs> No, it's not. It's more like London, but with fewer options in terms of accommodation and a lot of rich kids or kids with rich parents, at least. Right. And yeah, because any international student is going to have a little money on the side. Yep. But I'll, I'll have to make do somehow. Yes, you will. I'm sure you're going to do fine. It's in the interest of scholarly development. Right. Which is what you put in your application. Exactly. So we have episode 17 in front of us that is pretty great and we have decided officially it's in the books it's on the record it's carved into stone that we will have 18 episodes this season um so this is the second to last episode and we will release the final episode right before new year's so between christmas and new year's that's right and then we'll round it off with a nice calendar year. And then we'll come back next year with a new series, some new energies, a lot of interviews, uh, talking about the seat of arbitration. Yeah, that's going to be the main thing of the next season. Maybe we should just, just do that, skip the rest and just spend half an hour per episode on any given jurisdiction. Yeah, my that was my plan, at least. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all, all the feedback we keep getting is less of you guys and yeah, more of exactly. other people. <laughs> Um, so we have three new topics for everyone today. The first topic will be expert witnesses. We talked about fact witnesses with uh, Sharon Safe a couple episodes ago, and this time we will talk about expert witnesses, talking about some tips and tricks and also some things to think about when appointing some experts. And then Joel will take over with exclusion agreements. Is there something specific you're going to talk about there? Yeah, it's a super specific topic in and of itself it is basically yeah and you've done much research on this i assume i actually have in the in the professional sense so it's it's one of those things that keep popping up when i when i'm doing my actual research as part of my work and then happy fun time we have a third topic that begins with the letter e after experts and exclusion agreements what is that we have ethics in do we need more regulations on lawyers? Um, we have the, in, do we need an international ethics standard or should we all just keep to our own jurisdictions and keep to ourselves? Super happy, super fun. Super happy, everyone get regulated. <laughs> um, all right, well let's, without further ado, move on. Yeah. 
All right. So now we have the issue before us about experts. And the reason why we're bringing this, this up in a separate topic from factual witnesses is because it's a whole other animal. There's a lot of things that we need to think about in appointing experts, a lot of things to think about when cross-examining experts. And there's some hot topics that have come up for tribunals trying to get to the truth of the matter uh, when it comes to experts. Now, as we all know, the experts can come up in a variety of ways. We have legal experts, technical experts, and financial experts. And the more cases I do, the more I feel that sometimes a case can rise and fall on a good expert because it becomes the majority of the cross-examination. It becomes the majority of the focus of the hearing. These are two reputable people in the industry that are going face-to-face, and it's the... A lot, a lot of lawyering happens behind the scenes, so it's kind of like a toe-to-toe on who has prepared their case better. Um, and I think you can overstaff your experts, but you can also understaff your experts. So I, when I was a secretary on a case, um, there was a legal expert to talk about a specific area of constitutional law, and the you know, cross-examination was basically nothing because no one argued with this um, expert's opinion on constitutional law. So I think there can be some caution uh, in appointing the right experts. But especially in the investment arbitration context, financial experts become, um, it's a whole career to be a financial expert as a, in arbitrations as a career. And a lot of the same names get reappointed. A lot of the same companies and the same big names are booked out throughout the year. Yeah, it's even now, it's, it's come to the point that you see at least one, there's one exit challenge, one challenge at exit against an arbitrator on, based on the allegation that that arbitrator has too significant a tie to one specific expert firm, been using them both as counsel and on tribunal, sort of referring to the same uh, novel quantification ideas in different capacities so it's uh, it's as it's so common that it's in in, in challengeable ground yeah and it's such a tight it's such a tight rope to walk because you have it's a small community so the same reason why people think that challenges to counsel or challenges to arbitrators based off a connection that the two people have and then you know the main counter argument is well arbitration is a small community we shouldn't worry about this you kind of have that same thing arising with financial experts in arbitration because you have you know the brattle group you have navigant you have cra you have all these you know key players and their uh, their main partners that you could say in those organizations are booked years in advance for cases. So to think that counsel is going to be reappointed or arbitral tribunals are going to be reappointed, but that shouldn't lead to a challenge. Then you have this issue with experts now being come names in the industry. Um, and it's quite interesting um, how quickly that has come to light. But then, so, you know, one of the points that I want to bring up is that you have to have your expert be independent. And not only that, but it needs to be qualified. So if we look at independence, you need to look at they have, have had previous engagements or taking previous views. In the case that you're talking about, that could help your case because it's a consistent view um, and something that a tribunal, quote unquote, buys. Um, but in other cases, uh, it could be that the financial expert had to take a completely um, a diametrically opposed position in an earlier arbitration. 
And obviously, if you go down into the nitty gritty of it, you could say, well, there were different assumptions and different instructions. But on the appearance of it, there could be appearance of a lack of independence or impartiality in that sense. Right. And then you go to qualifications. So in cross-examination, this is usually the first two subsets or themes that happen during cross-examination. One is, okay, you guys went out to lunch before. You're not independent. And then the second one is that are you really an expert in your field? Um, and financial experts are economists, so that's a pretty easy, a pretty easy uh, coin to turn. But if you have um, technical experts, for instance, you may get um, someone who is knowledgeable on a specific turbine who's worked for 20 years on this turbine, but he's not necessarily a mechanical engineer. So you kind of have to question them in a different way. Are you qualified as an expert because you have the work experience or are you qualified because you've studied this? Um, where does their qualifications come up? Yeah, um, and, and another thing, I guess, uh, in terms of qualifications is also that uh, the expert in question needs to be qualified at presenting their knowledge, both in the written form and maybe even more so in during cross to be a person who who's able to withstand pressure from opposing counsel and still communicate their knowledge through to the tribunal. Oh, yeah. With I mean, with you're right. Withstanding pressure from counsel is a big one. Um, but they, they, you also have kind of, you, you ever, you've been in many situations where you've been being taught by a professor who's the biggest name in the industry, but cannot for the life of him, put together a coherent sentence without losing the entire room. Exactly. This is not, obviously for me, legal experts are the most interesting because I'm part of an academic community and most, most of the, the very good professors make most of their money, not from university salaries, but from being experts in, in, in disputes. Right. And the, the, there's a not very secret core of people who are excellent scholars and researchers who are the smartest people on the faculty who would never be put on a stand <laughs> to be to be crossed by opposing counsel. So they are not even involved in disputes simply because they are exactly what you think that some professors are, i.e. too smart to interact smoothly yeah. with other people. And when you're going around and interviewing potential experts to, you know, to engage in your proceedings, you really talk to them and you meet them face to face because you need to know, okay, are you going to be able to communicate this clearly because these a lot of these financial concepts and economic principles need to be boiled down to layman's terms and that's a very effective um, expert when you talk about legal experts for a second it's funny because there's a rule of thumb that says you shouldn't cross-examine legal experts because we're technically supposed to be legal experts ourselves when we're cross-exam you know when we're leading an arbitration or you're at a partner in an arbitration yeah and so are the tribunal members of course yeah and so you're kind of trying to beat the person at their own game but everyone's involved in the game and everyone thinks they have the right answer so it's who are you going to try and prove or who are you going to try and fool or who are you going to try and convince in that type of situation which brings me to a trick before i i know i've lost my structure already but who cares? I uh, the what they say not to do is to if you're matching a technical expert or a financial expert, you cannot beat them at their own game. So you cannot tell a technical expert that the way that they've analyzed the revolutions of a turbine is incorrect according to mechanical engineering principles, because you just don't know that much. No matter how much you've read up on the case and no matter how much you've read the report, they can make you look like an idiot 
extremely quickly if they just take you off your planned course. So um, what do you do? So you just get them on, and this is my next point, is that it becomes a battle of assumptions and instructions between the two parties. So what one party has engaged a financial experts, let's say, and when they engage them, they say, these are the instructions that you have to follow, and these are the assumptions that you have to use as inputs into your masterful equation. Now, these are going to be beneficial to the party engaging the expert, um, depending on analysis, for example, if they want ex ante or ex post valuation, if they want an assumption of a remedying the breach within five years versus 15 years, these type of assumptions come in. Now, the problem with that is that it's the lawyers that are giving these. So, of course, that they collaborate with their financial experts and say, okay, what do you think is reasonable? But two parties have come to different conclusions on what assumptions are reasonable and what instructions are reasonable and whether the lawyer went too far. So a very effective cross-examination is going to really stick to those points and say, okay, well, you've assumed this because they have to back up their assumption. They can't just take assumptions and then be like, oh, I was told to do this and I have no backup for it. So they really need to push them on that to say, okay, do you think that assumption or that input is really reasonable um, given X, Y, Z, which our um, expert has done? And then in the end... As when we when we teach quantum at the master's program in Uppsala, we we, do, we go through all the classical Khorsov factory and and what have you, but we also look at different or many different awards in which two different experts have come to, I mean the polar opposite in terms of quantification of the damages. It's in almost every well argued case with well staffed counsel team and experts, you will have everything between zero to a billion dollars in quantification, yeah. basically. And then the tribunal has to work with those two very, very different. But then I see why that is, because you, in the way you describe it, it has to do with the different assumptions being put into the models. Yeah. And you'll say, okay, well, we want a discounted value method of valuation because side note, it gives you like three times as many damages, or we want a, you know, net present value of something uh, because it would minimize the damages. So you have um, you have these assumptions that you have to work with, and what they say is a good technique, especially when you're preparing your expert in their report and also in their examination, is that you should be very you should be very wary of um, comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges. So in the sense that you're talking about is that you have two experts basically opining on two very different things because they've taken two different positions you should instruct your expert to take the assumptions from the other party and see if there's any commonalities that you can find. You say, okay, well, if we take this five-year remedying assumption, then we actually meet at the same point. So we have the same numbers. So let's go back and say, okay, let's look at the assumptions. So that kind of helps you narrow down the issues that are really in dispute. Because if you get to that point, your calculations are the same, then there's nothing to argue about the expert about. You kind of argue on the reasonability of their assumptions. Um, and when you talk about getting to these commonalities, a lot of things have, uh, a lot of tribunals have discussed, um, not necessarily entertained, the issue of hot tubbing or witness conferencing. You know what that is, right? Yeah, but maybe our listeners... Don't. Yeah. So you put um, a couple experts side by side and put them in a room and the tribunal can ask them questions or they have a set list of questions and they will kind of go f 
on a face-off. And I've never seen one of these in practice. I'm dying to because I think... Yes, yeah, same here. To me, this is something that is being talked about in conferences and not something that is being practiced on an everyday basis. But I, I don't know. No, because the problem is, and so I was looking up the pros and cons of hot tubbing because I just see pros that you're basically saying, it's like if someone was telling a lie about you and you're like, well, let's bring them over here and let's, the two of us will f go face to face, you know, because you'll, you'll definitely see who's, who has uh, a better grip on the case. But the cons are, is that if you have a very timid or, um, insecure expert then he's just going to be he or she will be completely railroaded by the other expert and then you don't really have you don't really give that expert an opportunity to be heard in the in the examination you're just yeah yeah watching. and i guess as, as counsel you're sort of removing yourself from the steering wheel and in, inserting the tribunal instead yeah exactly you kind of let go your um ability to hang on to the control of the arbitration um, and then you have, and this is going to go into our third topic. Um, so this is the last point that I want to talk about, but you also have that these are experts and they're not advocates. So they have an obligation to maintain a level of impartiality and independence, but the lawyers as well in instructing them or giving these assumptions have an obligation. Um, we can argue what that standard of obligation is, but um, you need to make sure that there's no admission of fact or a complete, you know, misrepresentation of the facts when you're having your experts incorporate certain ex uh, certain assumptions. Um, yeah, it's good. It's good uh, segue to the final happy fun time topic because it's not really clear. There's no universal standard when it comes to how and to what extent you you may prepare or coach your expert witness. Definitely. I mean, if you think about it, because we're talking about these experts being stars or names in their own right in arbitration, they may have an interest in being completely impartial and independent because they'll look better in the hearing. Um, but if you're looking at an expert who's kind of new in the game and wants to get more appointments or more, you know, engagements, they might be a little bit more willing to kind of go along with the assumptions and go along with the instructions of a party because they want to make them happy. Uh, it's a business at the end of the day. Uh, so it's a bit interesting to see whether you think a party can manipulate an expert to say okay, to say what they want to say. So they may choose a little bit more of a junior expert to be able to get their point across under the guise of it being an expert opinion. That's where cross-examination comes into play. Can I ask you the million-dollar question? Yes. And I realize this depends on 47 different things. But what's the going market rate? Oh. What, what, do, what do you pay in the in the laboratory setting when we have we know nothing about the case as such? How much would you want to pay for the best financial expert out there or the best legal expert who can testify to domestic law says X and X is what you need to convincingly win your case? Uh, yeah, of, of course, there's many different variables to go, but let's just choose a just, big, yeah, a big hockey investment. 150,000? Six US figures? Dollars. Six figures, yeah. Yeah. I remember now that we talked about Gary Bourne's expert witness in the set aside in the Sevilla Court of Appeal, which is convenient because it's in the public domain. That right. was, what, 300,000? 350, right. but that was also including costs to and show up had, in court. But, and his expert opinion was massive, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was uh, that was a minor doctoral dissertation. 
Yeah, so you're talking about these legal scholars that are getting in the market of being legal experts. Now you know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, because Sweden is Sweden every year. Uh, well, uh, let me let me put it like this. All, all universities are public, so we know. You, it's easy to get to know what professors make. And then they also have to disclose to the university what they make on the side. And that is also disclosed. So I don't know if they still keep doing this, but when I was in law school every year, some legal blog published these data. Like Professor X makes, you know, $200,000 a year and then nine times as much in external <laughs> commitments, unspecified what that is. And you could really see that the experts who are experts in, you know, in damages or, or different kinds of business law or even private international law, conflict of laws, that kind of thing, made so much more than people who were professors of criminal law. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. But I mean, they're taxed, so thank you. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not saying this is an inherently bad thing. On the contrary. But, right. And of course, we're happy that they are paying taxes so that I can go to law school for free and get a salary to be a doctoral student. Right. Well, before we start drooling over six figures, let's move on to the next segment. Exclusion agreements, uh, the very phrase exclusion agreements implies that you're excluding something. It's a pretty generic term, so let me specify it for you. What you're excluding here is court review of your arbitral award. So typically, uh, if nothing else is being agreed to by the parties, every arbitral award can be challenged. We've talked about the various aspects of this practice many times before on this podcast. In ICSID, you go to annulment committee. Uh, outside of ICSID, you go typically to the court at the place of arbitration to challenge the validity of the award, which is not an appeal, but rather something that's limited to a few procedural points on which you can try to have the award annulled or set aside. But in some jurisdictions, domestic jurisdictions, the parties may actually opt out of this. They may exclude court review and in essence make the arbitral award just a one-stop shop. So nothing more can happen once the award has been rendered. Okay. This is typically the three domestic jurisdictions that are used as examples are uh, Switzerland, Sweden, and Belgium. And I see now that since a few years, it's the same in France, of course our arbitration-friendly jurisdiction number one. Now that I say this out loud, actually, let me make a unilateral declaration that for the first episode of the second season, if nothing else dramatically happens that we have to address, let's make happy fun time about the phrase arbitration-friendly. <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm so irritated, annoyed. I even I despise this phrase. We have to talk about it. What, what does it even mean? It gets thrown around so much. Let's try to shoot down the phrase arbitration friendly. Joel, wow. You're very passionate. Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm overdoing it. But let's put a pin in that and return to that in January 2018 and see if I'm still as, as upset by the phrase as I am right now. <laughs> I know you're pretty upset. All right, keep going. <laughs> so... In certain arbitration-friendly jurisdictions, whatever that means, you may opt out as a party of court review of your case under certain circumstances. Um, for example, it must be very clear that this is the intention of the parties. It needs to be expressly 
put in an agreement, basically. I will get back to this. And secondly, in some of these jurisdictions, there's a distinction between domestic and international arbitrations, which I have never been able to figure out why. Uh, you probably know this, that in some jurisdictions, they generally make a distinction between domestic and international arbitration. They even have different yeah, in the US. legal acts. Yeah, for example, and I think even in Switzerland, it may, this may even be the most common approach, come to think of it, that you have one international act, which is based on the ancestral model law some, some way, or one way or the other, and then you have one domestic, which is different. And uh, it's the case in Switzerland, for example. And weirdly enough, when Sweden introduced exclusion agreements in their arbitration act or in our arbitration act, we, because we only have one arbitration act, which applies equally to both, they made sure that exclusion agreements only apply or only allowed in international cases, so not in domestic cases. Mm -hmm. And I don't really see, I mean, I see the point in this and in, in the assumption that international parties maybe are more sophisticated than domestic parties, typically speaking. But I think that's maybe an old assumption. Right. So uh, you have this and expressly allowed for in some jurisdictions. And then the model law is silent, which means that it's unclear if you're not in and then uh, Brussels or Geneva or Stockholm or Paris seated arbitration, you can still maybe opt out of court review, depending on what the applicable domestic law says, and most of the others are silent. So we have a lot of different case law from different jurisdictions on this point uh, in, in different directions. This is interesting, and the reason I uh, stumbled into this in my research is that, as I said, because this opt out, which is essentially, you know, the parties are opting out of their day in court, as you you often hear. Yeah. So it's, it's it, that's why jurisdictions or domestic jurisdictions are kind of skeptical generally towards this. That's also why you have to do it expressly. But the question is alive in investment treaty arbitration when the disputing parties typically do not have an agreement and they don't agree to anything after the dispute has arisen. So this has been tried in Switzerland in uh, Saluka versus Czech Republic, where the bit in question said, as many bits do, that the award is final and binding upon the parties, or the award shall be final and binding upon the parties. And so the party resisting the challenge in Swiss courts said that you guys have no jurisdiction because as allowed by Swiss legislation, we have opted out of your jurisdiction because we agreed that the award would be final and binding. I mean, this is what I was going to say in the very beginning of what you were talking about was that it's almost, I mean, it's an exclusion, an arbitration agreement is a technical exclusion agreement. So you're really only getting out of the very few grounds that you do have to challenge an award. If you opt out of court review, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the point of arbitration is to stay out of court. <laughs> right. Basically. But you can only do so to the extent that the domestic jurisdiction that is your legal anchor allows. You have the outer frame of the normative web, if webs have frames. Probably not. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> So, so the Swiss courts, uh, of course, said that just by agreeing in a treaty that an award should be final and binding, 
uh, you are not opting out of court review because the treaty also allows for uncertral arbitration, I think, in this case. And uncertral arbitrations, uh, they entail a domestic place of arbitration. And under our laws, you have to be way more specific if you're opting out of our exclusive jurisdictions. Yeah, that, that seemed like a pretty cut and dry case to me. Yeah, unfortunately, it could have been interesting. And and of course, it's, um, I mean, A for effort on behalf of yeah, creative. Uh, the investor, I think, in this case. Another interesting thing that I stumbled into is that in some arbitration rules, you have provisions that to me would seem like exclusion agreements, but they seem to not be. I'm, uh, I'm interested to hear your view on this. Uh, an example is the ICC rules, which... Uh, say, let me quote here, blah, blah, blah. By submitting the dispute to arbitration under the rules, the ICC rules, the parties shall be deemed to have waived their right to any form of recourse insofar as such waiver can validly be made. Uh-huh. So I would feel, just on the top of it, before going any further into the depth of this, this wording shall be deemed to have waived their right to any form of recourse to me would indicate that if it's allowed in the jurisdiction in question to opt out of court, this ICC language would actually entail opting out of court. Right. No, I I took that as well. And it's the same though, similar in the LCIA rules where there's a waiver for appeal, review or recourse. So I, I looked into this because I hadn't, I mean, th that would be huge if the implications of agreeing to ICC or LCIA arbitration would be that you could not challenge the award in court. Yeah. So obviously that's not the case. Okay. So I had to look into this a little bit. And in the ICC Secretariat's comment to the ICC rule, ICC rules, they uh, say that the provision is unlikely to be deemed sufficient to constitute a waiver, blah, 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 even in those jurisdictions where such a waiver is possible. But that statement is not supported by any reasoning at all. Uh, so even if it's sensible as a matter of policy, I don't think it sits very comfortably with the with the wording. No, because of... technically what they're saying is that if basically you need an express agreement to opt out and then you expressly agreed to the ICC rules, which impliedly, since it says shall be deemed to be waived, even though that's an implied waiver, you expressly agreed to the ICC rules. So it, there's your express agreement. So you should could have opt out it could yeah be yeah and i assume i i've just been too lazy to look further i assume this has been tested given the vast amount of icc cases out there so maybe we'll get back to this in a later episode because i i cannot imagine for the life of me that a creative council would not have tried to say that the icc rules actually constitute a waiver of this but um, presumably the reason is that it's as you said it's it's implicit in the rules so it's not as required by the various jurisdictions that allow for this, it, it's not a an express direct agreement in which the parties basically say in a, in a direct agreement that we agree not to pursue this in court. They agree to ICC rules and then by extension indirectly the ICC rules contain such a waiver. So Yeah, but I know I a lot of lawyers that could argue that that's an express agreement, no? I mean... Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think just from the wording of it, it, it should be. I right. think. I wonder if there's an interest in the Secretariat or in the ICC in not having court review. I haven't really thought of this. This is just coming off the top of my head. But because they do have like the scrutiny in the ICC and you don't want 
awards challenge? Do you want to have like a institution that has um, a lot of awards that are upheld? It could be a selling point. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I assume that's the case. Right. And otherwise, why would they even have this rule or the provision in the rules in the first place that to the extent it's possible, all parties agreeing to ICC arbitration hereby waive their right to go to court? Of course, that is because the ICC has an interest in seeing as, as few as possible of their cases being challenged. So this is not interpreted as like a fork in the road type of provision. Uh, what would be the alternative? Like, well, well, no, just saying that you could, because you, if you like to challenge an award is different than saying you can't go to court to hear the merits of your dispute. So could this article be seen as, do you see what I'm saying? That the, yeah, basically yeah, yeah. they're saying like the arbitration agreement means that you cannot go to court to hear the merits of your dispute. That's what that article means. It doesn't mean recourse to courts after the arbitration award has been rendered. Mm, that's true. But once again, the wording is super broad. It says yeah. waive the right to any form of recourse. <laughs> right. So um, that would cover also the examples that you give, I guess, to the extent that it's possible under domestic law. And and that brings me to my final point, which is that most domestic jurisdictions are kind of... Uh, they don't want to give up this exclusive jurisdiction. So the, the examples I gave, the, the arbitration-friendly jurisdictions are uh, exceptions. And this is relevant because in many of the reforms that are being discussed of ISDS specifically, started with CETA and it would probably come up in the Uncitral work now in the future when the Uncitral work is, is up and running, is, as we know, some sort of annulment mechanism that I talked to Michele Potesta about a right. few weeks ago. And this is something that I've been I've been poking the EU Commission lawyer who is in charge of this on, on Twitter. And I haven't followed up in an academic setting, but it, it, hear me out on this. It, it's it's a, a few layers to, to get wrap okay. your head around the problem, but I think, I think it's relevant. I'm with you, Martin Scorsese. Let's do this. <laughs> so... In CETA, for example, or in any other future instrument in which an appeal mechanism will be introduced, presumably the the instrument in question will still allow for uncitral arbitration. That is the case in CETA, and that seems to be the assumption of many of the states in the uncitral discussions. So the uncitral rules will probably be available one way or the other for future disputes as well. And if you have an uncentral arbitration, you must anchor that in a domestic jurisdiction. Yes. And in CETA, it's not specified which domestic place of arbitration uh, should govern future disputes under CETA, which means that basically the tribunal has to decide or designate a place of arbitration if the parties cannot agree. Okay. This is where it gets interesting because an annulment mechanism is essentially an agreement between the parties to opt out of court. So right. you're, you're saying in your treaty that rather than going to domestic court to challenge the award, we will go to this annulment mechanism that we have made up as a new thing. So you're removing, in an uncertain case, the right to challenge the award before court, and instead you go to something completely new outside of domestic law. Right. And this is probably not allowed in most states. Uh-huh. It is in Sweden, it is in Switzerland, and so on. But it's not very clear if you go, if you put it in the U.S., for example. Do you think the United States courts in an arbitration that's seated in Washington would allow for the parties, you and I, entering into an arbitration agreement, providing that the award can only be challenged 
before legal body that you and I create ourselves and not in the court in Washington. I'm I'm very skeptical. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, but how do you compare this to like the exit annulment procedures and nobody's ability to go to court in that sense? But that's that's so interesting. That's a very good question because exit is or intended to be self-enclosed. Right. So you don't have a place of arbitration. You you basically have all states opting into the exit convention and then you have a system in the it's it's just isolated. It has nothing to do with domestic jurisdictions. Right. So that's the way it's been structured. So you're saying, oh, I see that. So the UNCTRAL rules are kind of like the leak in the logic. Exactly. Because in UNCTRAL, at least the way the rules are still working, you need a domestic jurisdiction, you need a domestic court. And that sort of opens the door to to this question, because yeah. domestic courts, they tend to be wary of giving up their exclusive jurisdiction when an arbitration is, is seated there. Sounds like a thesis topic to me. Was that a bathtub Joel moment? You know, I... It was actually. <laughs> I can remember when I thought about this. I was listening actually to uh, to a podcast and in the bath. That's uh, that's a really good point. Yeah. So listen, listen up, treaty states. I will probably write something about this, and if the onsetral work proceeds, because someone has to point out, maybe it'll be part of my dissertation if it if it's ever done. <laughs> that's great. It is. It's also time for happy fun time. Let's go. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed our four seconds of music from David Shiste, or however you pronounce his last name. And we're now on to the third topic, the happy fun time topic, which is, are you an ethical person, Joel? Yes. How much time do we have? <laughs> this is going to be such a bland conversation from your end because Swedes are the most hyper-ethical people. Um, yeah, but I'm not even a practicing lawyer. I'm assuming the whole thing you want to talk about is framed for uh, counsel, people representing other people in court and not academic ethics, for example, which is an interesting topic, but not one that any right, other is interested in. You can participate, though. I'll, I'll allow you on behalf of all practitioners everywhere. I'll do what I always do, and I will uh, criticize your whole profession and all the assumptions of everything you say. Yeah. So I have a list of examples where conflicts of interest or ethical dilemmas can arise. Um, so I just want to read them out really quickly. So we have like a frame of reference or examples to, to draw from. Um, the principal areas of concern for counsel and clients are extent to which a counsel may accept instructions in the event of conflicts of interest, extent to which counsel can make submissions, either written or oral, regarding allegations of unusual seriousness such as fraud or illegality, and the degree of evidence required to permit this, the extent to which counsel must draw the attention of the tribunal and the counterparty to arbitration to legal authority, which is contrary to the position the council is advancing. Hmm, that's the, a new one. The extent to which council is obliged to search for documents requested by a counterparty. Whether a witness affiliated with the party may testify as a witness of fact or whether such association precludes the witness from doing so. The extent to which counsel can assist witnesses in the preparation of their written testimony, of course. The extent to which counsel can prepare witnesses. The extent to which counsel may communicate with potentially adverse party where such party is represented by counsel. And finally, the extent to which counsel may have ex parte communications 
with the members of the tribunal. Where's this from, this list? This is from an article called The IBA Guidelines on Party Representation and International Arbitration by Tom Cummins, Cummins in the LCIA Arbitration International uh, Journal. So those... This, the stage is set. The stage is set. So the question really becomes, we really want to promote an equality of... Well, the question becomes this, everyone, is that when you, right now what happens is that you're taking the ethical standards that you're obliged to follow from your home jurisdiction or from the place in which you are barred. The question is, do we think that's fair? And if we want to promote an equality of arms and arbitration, do we think that instituting an international standard of ethics will have benefits that basically outweigh the cost? Do we need regulations? And more importantly, what is quote unquote optimal behavior for lawyers? Because that's the question, right? Like we're saying, all right, let's have an international standard of ethics. And now we have to all argue on what is optimal standard of ethics. Yeah, and you have to get a bunch of people who argue for a living and who have strong connections to their home jurisdictions to agree on something that's close to their heart. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a fruitful adventure, although as a matter of principle, I think it's a good idea to try because the how, how many things did you list? Nine, ten yeah. problems? Yeah, the, the answer to all of them, of course, depends on, on the jurisdiction in question in which you're barred which sounds like you are barred from practicing do you, do you say that you are barred, barred in, in yeah okay yeah so you basically you'll have the as many different answers as you have uh, people Problems. yeah <laughs> right no and i um but the problem is is that you're dealing in you're in an unequal playing field because if you're coming from a jurisdiction where you're not allowed to prep your witness and you have a witness who's going to be a total wild card on the stand. And then the other party has a wild card witness, but they are able to really sit with the witness, feed them what they need to say. You know, this is the, these are the two extremes. Are you really on a level playing field? Um, and a lot of people would argue that you're not. So um, what do you do? And there's been attempts uh, to codify some sort of international standard. You have the IBA guidelines on party representation and even the IC LCIA rules have um, guidelines. And But those are all based on like a self-regulation of the legal profession. You know, we're all supposed to uphold this standard for ourselves and there's, you know, self-reporting or, but there's no real teeth in how to, um, and how to really enforce this. I mean, the Swedish Arbitration Association has been on record for criticizing these rules is not enough. Um, so you need to see, okay, so what, what can we do now? What can an arbitral tribunal do now when they are in facing these problems? Um, they have very vague provisions in the rules to say that they can, you know, do what they want to, you know, administrate the case and the matter that they see fit. But what can they do? They can do sanctions. They can do cost orders. Yeah, and I mean, the basic pragmatic approach is PO1. And in the first procedure order, you can set down which rules will apply. And to the extent that you feel as a tribunal that the IBA rules are not sufficient, you can specify additional things, I guess. Yeah. No? yeah. Or is that a naive approach? No, 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 definitely. But then what do you do when that's violated? Yeah, but then you have a party who's violated a procedural agreement. That's a general question that happens from time to time. And then, as you say, you have the adverse inference again, and you have cost awards and 
Yeah. yeah. Is that uh, enough? I, Do you think that's no. enough? <laughs> I mean, that depends on what the breach in question is, of course. If it's bordering unethical behavior, of course, it's not really enough to have that sort of vague uh, remedies. Right. I mean, the thing we've seen come up, you know, recently is the disqualification of counsel in the Havartska and the Rumpetrol cases. Um, so in that case, there was a way to deal with like the conflict, conflicts of interest issue. Um, but that's a very mild situation because it's just a matter of like, did they know each other and did they come from the same barrister's chamber? But if you have someone who is knowingly lying or knowingly withholding documents from the other party, what can you really do? Um, and how do you find that out? Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Proving it is the hard part, I guess. Yeah. So there's an EU directive. I don't know if you know about this, because uh, I didn't. The, in EU Directive 98.5EC is intended to facilitate practice of the profession of lawyers on a permanent basis in a member state other than that in which the qualification was obtained. It states that irrespective of the rules of the professional conduct to which he or she is subject in his home member state, a lawyer practicing under his home country professional title shall be subject to the same rules of professional conduct as lawyers practicing under the relevant professional title of the host member state in respect of all activities he pursues in its territory. Hmm, I didn't know this, but it seems like a typical EU instrument. Yeah. <laughs> And it would it would sort of solve the thing if all council and parties involved are based in the EU, which is never the case. Yeah. So it, as an example, they say an English lawyer practicing as a solicitor in respect to arbitral proceedings in Paris would fall under this provision. She will be subject to both English regulations, if applicable, and those of the Paris bar as well. So you have a... But then, I mean, let's talk about the different ways of how many bars you can be under in one arbitration. Yeah, that's my next question. Is this why people tend to qualify in different jurisdictions so they can ethics shop and in practice uh, go for the US where the standards are somewhat lower? That's true. What if you're a dual dual national bar? Which is not super uncommon. Every big arbitration firm has a, a number of these people. Yeah. I, it's I, I think it's I think it's interesting in practice because I really think it comes up and I've been on certain calls where I felt okay I may have to hang up on this call because according to my ethical um, considerations this uh, this may not be something that I can uh, partake in but for someone who else was on the call this was a completely fine um, but when you are you are qualified in New York Yes. And you practice in Stockholm. And okay. let's say that the arbitration is seated somewhere else. You are still always, of course, under the New York bar rules. Because even if you're not practicing in New York and have no connection to New York and your work, you are still a member of the New York bar. Is that the way it works? Yes. So what would happen if you also then entered the Swedish Bar Association and became an advocate in practice? Could you, could you in fact, shop between the two? Yeah, I wonder if I can the like nexus of what you're doing. I wonder if I can if they're gonna like MFN me. I should have brought in the same way. That was exactly what I was thinking. I should have brought in some other higher standard that I should be applied. So basically, it's bad. I should just be a non-barred lawyer practicing an arbitration. And then what do you do then? What do you do then if you're you know you're you don't have to be barred in certain you know certain jurisdictions to be to participate in arbitration. 
That's right. And there's no one apart from like domestic courts to the extent that your uh, behavior is criminal. There, there's no one to enforce or uh, uphold any kind of ethical standards. No. I mean, at this point, I think it's a bit academic what, what this, this whole conversation is, is talking about. And is it's, it though? I think you're assuming that people are way more sophisticated than they are because you work for a big firm with big international cases. I've seen and been uh, somewhat uh, informed of less sophisticated parties where yeah. these issues may actually be, come up more regularly than in the 150 million lawsuits that you're working on. They come up and it's it, they definitely come up, but it's a matter of self-regulation at this point to say like, okay, no one's in the room with me with this witness. I can do whatever I want. And it's up to you to be an upstanding citizen of the bar, an upstanding member of the bar to say, okay, well, I'm not allowed to do this and really like self-regulate in that sense. Yeah. And let, I guess we, we should be honest and say that we assume that is the case. I'm not trying to black... Blackmail is not the phrase. What am I saying? Blackmail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe. I don't even know. I'm not trying to badmouth the legal legal profession as such. Really, I, I'm just uh, the, the assumption, of course, should be what you are saying that most people who are 95 percent to to 99 percent of the people who represent other people for for a living in international arbitration are upstanding citizens who will self-regulate. Yeah. But there are so many gray zones, so it's not always, I guess, super clear what no. is the ethical thing to do. Witness prep alone. I mean, some people think it's it's essential to be like, okay, these are the real points of our case. We need to make sure you're hitting these points, witness. Uh, that's not necessarily being, you know, immoral. Uh, but according to some bar rules, it's unethical. So um, it's, it's definitely a catch, catch. So how do we move forward if we agree that it might be useful? Well, I think, I mean, my personal opinion is that I think that the tribunal needs to be a little bit more trigger happy with how they enforce these issues, because I don't think, you know, there's some things that some people have said that the institutional rules should include uh, certain provisions, and then they would be the ones regulating this. But I don't think that's necessarily right. And I don't think shame alone is enough to to do this. So I think you need to, I think the best thing that has come up is sanctions and fines and, um, you know, blacklists from being you know arbitrators uh like those type of things and of course yeah. cost awards um money speaks trust the tribunal yeah exactly uh so that's that's what i got on ethics <laughs> that's it that's close to i'm ethics ethics <laughs> i'm ethics out and that means we have one more episode before 2018 yes and I just really have to give one final push because when we start shopping around for sponsors, et cetera, we really want our numbers to be at the top uh, when we finish this season. So please spread the word. We've been getting a lot of emails and tweets and follows, but uh, just keep it up. We really appreciate it. We really do. We also appreciate Jan Kunstu, who, who by now has edited out a scary amount of bloopers that he has on file for for when he needs to blackmail us. Yes, <laughs> another black happening. Yes, thank you, Jan. A huge, a huge part of the arbitration station. Okay, I will talk to you in one week's time, Brian. Let's do it. See ya. Bye.